0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, like Julian mentioned, if you're here for Scholarship Weekend, uh, would you please stand so we can give you a warm Scott's welcome? <laughs> welcome. welcome. Uh, we are we are truly grateful you're here um, and trust that this day will be um, awesome. I uh, also wanted to announce, immediately after chapel, there will be a Q&A here with President Halverson, and the uh, administration will be here as well to answer any questions you have. So, um, prospective students and parents, please stick around for that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, President Halverson gave a, um, gave a devotional in cabinet, and he was talking about perspective, um, biblical perspective. And over the last couple of weeks, I've sort of been ruminating on this concept of perspective and how powerful perspective is. Um, how perspective is so oftentimes tied to wisdom. And it's sort of been the lens through which I've been viewing a lot of things that have been happening. So on uh, Monday, uh, we had a pretty good rainstorm coming down and I was driving, we live over by Rock City, so I was driving up to the college uh, for an intramural volleyball game. Fire. There it is. Uh, We're going to the championship game. There it is. Because they're awesome. Yeah. I could do this for a long time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm driving up Red Riding Hood uh, Road and get up to Lula Lake and, and turn right. And I'm the only car on the road. Um, the rain had been coming down pretty heavily. Um, it had sort of abated a bit. So it's, it's raining and there's rain coming down. The windshield wipers are kinda doing one of these jobs, not like the full this. Um, so I, I turn right onto Lula Lake and something kinda catches my eye on the road. And you know it's one of those moments where something is not quite right before your brain kind of catches what it is. And so I slow down, and, and sure enough, there's, there's a frog jumping across the road. It was not the most graceful thing in the world, but he's, he's jumping across the road. So I stop, and it's not every day you see a frog just jumping across the road, right? So um, I immediately, like nanoseconds, things start racing through my mind. The very first thing is... I thought about eating him, because Jay Finlayson and I had been talking about frog hunting a while back and frog legs, and, and that was just the very first thing that popped into my mind, like, are there more, and how difficult would it be to capture them? Um, that that left quickly because he was small and he wasn't a bullfrog and bad eating. Um, but then my, my honest question was, where on earth did this frog come from? Like, Did he magically appear with the rain? Is he like magic rain frog? Um, There's no stream or creek or pond from which he jumped, I don't think. So he's literally like just jumping across the road and he's headed towards the Methodist church on the corner. And I'm thinking like, I I know very little about frog culture and frog behavior. So um, that was my perspective. And, and I'm sure that a herpetologist, in looking at that, would have a very like clear perspective based on their knowledge of amphibious behavior and lifestyle, um, and so forth. So, um, perspective is huge, and perspective dictates so much of how we see things. Um, my wife was looking at something on, online the other day. It was a, a meme had come up, and I kind of was looking over her shoulder, and it was uh, it was a West Wing meme, television show, presidential. Pre- Television show, but it's it's the first panel is what caught my eye, and it it had a woman there, and her quote. You know, so it's panels with quotes, and here's here's how it read. Um, the woman is saying uh, to the president, "I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does." And then the president rips off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more panels, and here's what he says. He says, "Yes, it does. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here." I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery. Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian. What would, be, what would a good price for her be? While you think about that, let me ask you another. My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother for planting crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? And then the last one is the kicker, right? Think about those questions, would you, right? And I imagine that the perspective of the writer, that's like a a drop the mic moment, like burn, done, the issue's gone, right? But for someone who has a slightly different perspective, for somebody who understands Old Testament law, who understands the difference between ceremonial, religious and civil law, it's a whole different conversation and the perspective is completely shifted, right? So um, we talk a lot about perspective Here, and I think as Christians, we want to have biblical perspective because it impacts how we view life. It impacts how we view frogs. It impacts how we view memes and literature and nature and college and scholarships and relationships and beauty and tragedy and elections and race and ourselves and our God. So what is biblical perspective? We talk biblical perspective, but what is it? Um, In order to sort of dive into that a little bit, we're going to jump back into Exodus. We're going to look at chapters 5 and 6 a little bit. But first, we want to set some context and look at what's happening in the life of Moses. So Moses is born in Egypt, his people in bondage. And in God's providence, uh, Moses ends up being raised in Pharaoh's household. We don't know too much about what happens in the first 40 years of Moses' life. But we do know that when Moses turns 40, He kills an Egyptian slave master who is beating a Hebrew slave. He buries him in the sand, and despite his favor of being in Pharaoh's house, he's found out, and Pharaoh sets out to kill him. So he flees uh, east and south to Midian um, under the threat of death from Pharaoh, and the Midianites— Um, were descended from Midian, one of the the 12 tribes. Um, He ends up there. He meets a priest of Midian uh, named Jethro. He marries Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. They have a son named Gershom. And while he's fled at 40, he's there for 40 years before we really pick up. But even though he's gone, his previous life is not far from him. He names his son Gershom. Gershom meaning a stranger in a strange land. And he's talking about his life in Egypt not his new life in Midian. So in the meantime, 40 years pass. The king of Egypt dies. The Israelites continue to increase in number, and the new Pharaoh continues to control them in slavery. And eventually, under heavy burden and the weight of the slavery, they call out to their Lord to help them. The God who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he heard his people, and he was concerned for them. So at 80 years old, Moses is pasturing his father-in-law's sheep in the Sinai wilderness, and a bush shows up in fire, and God speaks to Moses from the bush. And I've always thought that Moses, hearing the voice of God calling out to him, he had to have been living for 40 years knowing that he'd killed a man, and knowing that at some point, justice was going to come through, and now God calls his name. But instead of justice, for the murder falling upon him. God's going to call him to a task and a work that he has. The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So Moses and God have this this T to T, little discussion here. Moses says, who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says, I will be with you. He says, what if they ask me who you are? And God says, who I am is consistent with who I have been, and what I will do is based on what I have already done. Moses says, they won't believe me. And God says, I'll give you signs. He says, I don't speak well. He says, I'll teach you what to say. He says, please, Lord, don't send me. He says, I've chosen you, and I will go with you. So Moses goes, he gets permission from his father-in-law, seek release, and he wants to go see, he tells his father-in-law, at least, if his people are still alive. His father-in-law gives him a blessing and he leaves. He takes out um, towards Egypt with his family. But then something happens on the way that really kind of sets the tone. This isn't going to be a simple process where Moses walks into the presence of Pharaoh, says, let my people go, and they go. Um, As they're traveling, Moses' son, Zipporah's son, Gershom, is, is struck by God and he gets to the point where he's about to die and Zipporah knows what's happening and Zipporah goes and circumcises the boy and takes the circumcised skin and dabs the blood on his legs a foreshadowing that same exact word of when the blood of the lamb is going to be put on the lentils and the doorposts so that the Israelite people won't be struck down as the curse of God rains through Egypt well after that time Um, That kind of foreshadowing, Zipporah and the family appear to go back home, and Moses meets his brother Aaron in the wilderness, who God has sent to him, and they together set off to Pharaoh. So we pick up in Exodus chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. You have to wonder if the name of Moses still has meaning in Egypt. Is it a a remembered name that perhaps got him access to see Pharaoh? Well, here he is now at 80 years old. He's with his brother, and he comes, and he stands before the most powerful ruler in the world, and he says, let my people go that they may go and worship with a festival. And Pharaoh Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know this Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And we see immediately and clearly the perspective from which Pharaoh is functioning, he does not know the Lord. And in fact, this is kind of a silly proposition before the king of Egypt, an 80-year-old man, a shepherd coming and saying, let my people go. He says, I know not your God, and they're not going anywhere. Then Moses Aaron say, but the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to our Lord, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword, conventional symbols of judgment. If you don't let us go, it's possible that God will judge us, that he'll strike us, and when he does, we won't be able to work, and you will lose your workforce. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Hear that, he's not afraid of them. There's no need to even punish them, it's so pitiful, right? Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous. They've grown and prospered. They're numerous. And you hear the fear as well. And you are stopping them from working. Like a good totalitarian, he stamps out any idea of resistance by now destroying the energy of the slaves. Listen to what he does. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Uh, bricks would have been uh, mud from the Nile and they would have put uh, pieces of straw and scrabble in there um, and then sit them out to bake. When they'd bake, the vegetable matter would release acid and make them sort of they'd give them plasticity and, and strength. You're not, al- you're not allowed to any longer give them straw. Let them go and get it themselves. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to these lies. So the way it was set up, you would have had slaves working in groups of slaves. Um, You would have had a Hebrew overseer who would have had direct contact with the people. And then you would have an Egyptian slave or taskmaster who would have reported directly to Pharaoh. That's what they have. And now the Hebrew overseer is dealing with reality. They have to make the same amount of bricks, but they also have to gather their own straw. The result is exactly what you'd expect. The slave drivers, the overseers, tell their people to find straw, keep the same quota. Then the slave drivers, the Egyptian slave drivers, end up beating the overseers because the people simply can't do what they're asked to do. So the overseers go and appeal to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, you're lazy, make the same quota of bricks. And picture this, Moses has come with a message of freedom and deliverance from God God has spoken by his very word to Moses that he is going to come and deliver his people from bondage but the oppression is becoming more miserable and greater so the overseers go and they find Moses and Aaron and here's what they say to them: when they left Pharaoh they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and they said may the Lord look on you and judge you you have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and I put a sword in their hand to kill us. Any hope that the Hebrew foreman once had has turned to resentment. Moses and Aaron, may God, who you say has called you, may he judge you. His own people attack him more viciously than even Pharaoh did. And the impact on Moses is clear. Hear what Moses now says. Moses, who's been charged by God. God has told him, I'm going to use you to free my people. Moses comes to the Lord and he says, why Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Why have you done this? You haven't rescued your people, you've in fact made it worse. And we wanna stop here with Moses' reaction for one moment. Henry Nouwen tells a story Um, One of my very favorite books, The Road to Daybreak. He tells the story of one of his friends named Jonathan, and Jonathan has a little girl named Jessie. Um, I I think I've used this example once a few years ago. Some of you may have heard it, but it's really a a beautiful picture. Uh, One morning when Jessie was four years old, she found a dead sparrow in front of the living room window. The little bird killed itself by flying into the glass. When Jessie saw the dead bird, she was both deeply disturbed and very intrigued. She asked her father, where's the bird now? John said he didn't know. Why did it die, she asked again. Well, John said hesitantly, because all birds return to the earth. Oh, said Jessie. then we have to bury it. A box was found, the little bird was laid in the box, a paper napkin was added as a shroud, and a few minutes later, a little procession was formed with Daddy, Mama, Jessie, and her little sister. Daddy carried the box, Jessie the homemade cross, After a grave was dug and the little sparrow was buried, John put a piece of moss over the grave and Jesse planted the cross upon it. Then John asked Jesse, do you want to say a prayer? Yes, replied Jesse firmly. And after having told her baby sister in no uncertain terms to fold her hands, this is what she prayed. Dear God, we have buried this little sparrow. Now be good to her or I will kill you. Amen. As they walked home, John said to Jesse, You didn't have to threaten God. <laughs> Jesse answered, I just wanted to be sure. And there we get to the heart of it. Jesse's prayer, her entire perspective, was dicti- dictated by the immediacy of her circumstances her compassion for the sparrow, her desire for God to be good to it, and without any guile, she threatens God. And that is exactly what the Israelites do. It's exactly where their perspective is formed. They allow their perspective to be dictated by the circumstances. They've been promised freedom, but they focus instead on straw and on bricks. Their perspective is not governed by what God was intending to do, but by the discomfort of what they were experiencing. God was in the process of delivering them from bondage. They thought God was absent because all they could see was the immediacy. Their perspective was narrow and immediate and small. And God's actions were broad and future and huge. And even Moses gets caught in it. His perspective gets hijacked by the circumstances. He somehow casts aside what he knows God has told him is going to happen Because he doesn't understand how God is unfolding his plan. And even as I say that, I'm being convicted. Because I know that is what I so often do. I know that's how my perspective is so often shaped. It's so often dictated by my circumstances, the way that things unfold. The things that I'm afraid of unfolding. My perspective can be skewed by seeing the immediate seeing the circumstances and living within those instead of looking up and seeing what is larger. But then God speaks to Moses, and he doesn't rebuke him, and he doesn't rebuke the Israelites. He graciously reminds Moses of who he is, and he tells him what he's going to do. Hear this. In chapter 6, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant He reminds Moses who he is, their faithful covenant God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who swore by himself that he would fulfill all of his promises, the God who called Abraham, the God who brought and delivered Joseph to power in Egypt. He says, I revealed myself to them, to the patriarchs, as God Almighty, or as El Shaddai, the one who provides and nourishes. But the promises... We're distant future for the patriarchs. Instead, he says, now, now you will know me as Yahweh. You will know me as Lord who comes in power to deliver my people. And then he reminds Moses, he reminds what he has done. I established my covenant with them. I swore by myself that I would fulfill my promises. I called Abraham, brought Joseph to power. I won't forget and haven't forgotten my covenant. And then he tells them what he's going to do. I will make Pharaoh free my people, and I will drive them from this land. And that pattern, God is going to repeat again as he tells Moses what to say to the Israelites. And it's the corrective. Hear this. That pattern is the corrective to a perspective that is governed by circumstance. This is what the Lord says to Moses. He says, say to the sons of Israel, I am Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. See that? he reminds them first who he is. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord God who has come in power. And then he promises them what he is going to do. He promises to deliver them from bondage. He promises to redeem them with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Those are going to fall on Pharaoh in Egypt. He promises to adopt them into the covenant as the people of God. I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And he promises to give them the land which had been promised to the fathers. I will give it to you for a possession. And then at the end, he reminds them again who he is. I am Yahweh. And in his response to Moses, to the Israelites, we have that corrective to a perspective that is dictated by immediacy and circumstance. If we want to have a truly biblical perspective, it is inherently and will always be God-centered. It has to be. A biblical perspective is a way of looking at the world at every event, every individual, every hope, every sorrow, and every joy, remembering who God is, what God has done, and what God promises to do. If we want to have a biblical perspective as we view our lives and the world We need to remember who God is, what God has done, and what God promises to do. The Israelites were so focused on the straw and bricks, they forgot to look up and truly see. And things are going to get crazy. Frogs are coming to Egypt, right? Pharaoh's army is soon going to be chasing them, and they're going to be pinched in between the Red Sea and the army. If they don't look up, if they focus on the immediacy, they will have nothing to do but despair. And we are the same. Right? The world is a hard place. It's a place of breathtaking joy and beauty, but of breathtaking evil and sorrow and tragedy and brokenness as well. And we need to be able to see it with eyes that can truly see so that we can walk and follow and love and honor and rest in our Savior. And that means that our perspective has to be steeped in remembering, in remembering who God is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And look, and this is super cool. God's deliverance of the Israelites foreshadows what is to come. It wasn't just a pattern for the Israelites. Listen to this. He promised to deliver them from slavery. And he has delivered us from slavery to sin at the cross. He promised to redeem them with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. He's redeemed us with an outstretched hand and great judgments that he poured out upon his son, holy, righteous, fully God, fully man, innocent, on the cross, dying for our sake, for our sin, taking our punishment upon himself. He promised to take them for his people. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. He promised land as their possession. He says, I'm preparing a place for you and will take you to be with me. And then finally, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am the Lord of power and might. And Jesus, Jesus says, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If we boil it down, a biblical perspective is actually fairly simple. It simply means seeing with eyes of faith. And we see with eyes of faith, not because it helps us win a culture war, not because it prepares us to argue well, not so that we have answers or so that we're somehow superior, but eyes of faith allow us to better see Jesus, to draw closer to him, to rely on him, to rest in him, to glory in him, and to glorify him. Let us be a people who remember who our God is, what our God has done, so that we know the promises that he's made are sure and true and real. Amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray. Father God, thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you, Lord, that you have proven yourself through all of history as compassionate, gracious, wise, just, and faithful. Help us, Father, to be a people who sees with eyes of faith, who never forgets to remember who you are or what you've done or what you promised to do. Help us, Lord, rest in your goodness and your mercy. Help us, Lord, to draw near to and to follow Jesus. Father, we give you all praise and thanks. In his name, amen. Let's stand and sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom?